Hey, Zhao. I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors. And um, I am really excited to do one of my favorite things, actually. Uh, we started it last year uh, called um, No Stupid Questions, where we, for a while, we gathered a bunch of questions from the community and submitted anonymously and compiled them. We pulled out 20 questions, and I attempted to answer all of them rapid-fire style during the sermon. Um, we are going to do that again today. And some of those questions are, some of the questions today are culled from questions we didn't get to last time. Some of them are questions that I've gotten over the course of this year. I have a feeling we're going to do this again. So if we are, as we're talking about all this, if you have questions that you want to submit for part three in the future, throw those in the chat um, because I think this is a really fun way to do things. Um, my answers will not be as thorough as they would be if I was doing a whole sermon on one of these questions, but I will do my best, and um, we're going to have them listed on the top. Cameron's going to read them into the record, and then um, we will start a timer of 90 seconds for me to <laughs> try and attempt to answer, and when my 90 seconds runs up, uh, at the end of the timer, we're going to hear this sound. And that's how I know that I have gone over time, and I'll do my best to wrap really quickly from there. So um, I think if that covers everything, producer Cameron? Yeah. All right. Then let's get started on this edition of No Stupid Questions. Kick us off, Cameron. What's question number one? Jonah, are science and faith opposites? No. No, I probably shouldn't stop there, huh? Um, I, I love science and I love faith. And uh, I sometimes talk about mystery. And I think faith and mystery are really combined or like have a lot in common. And I really think that mystery in a lot of ways is, is just like science we haven't figured out yet. That's some of what we talk about, you know, when we're like, oh, you know, the th theories that we have about religion, like that's just, we just didn't have the science for it yet. But I think that that's because we're engaging mystery of like how things happen and mystery is just science we haven't figured out yet, sure. But science is also just mysteries that we have some theories about. So we have the theory of gravity. Um, we're pretty sure about that one and there's a reason it's still a theory because science is a set of um, questions that we ask and ways that we can build order and make sense of our world through asking a lot of how questions. Faith is a lot more about why. Um, and so they're not opposites. They're complementary in these really powerful ways. And I think that science actually invites us into a different angle of that mystery world. And faith um, has, has a different set of questions, just a different methodology. So science and faith, not opposites. Next. Ooh. Got it in that, that time. All right. Next question. Evolution versus literal creationism. All right, get this one a lot. It is paired with that science versus faith thing. Again, different, they're, they're answering different questions. So evolution is our current best scientific theory, and it is a theory, and it's not flawless, but it is our best scientific theory as to like how, like how did all of this come about? And, and this, is a, this is like asking the mechanics of it. But the scriptures in the stories of creation that we have, and there are multiple creation stories in the Bible. Um, three is a really standard answer. There are two back-to-back -back just in Genesis alone. Um, but the scriptures are not attempting to tell us how. They're attempting to tell us why. Why did God create us? Why did God create 
all of these things in relationship to each other. And even in those first two stories of creation that we have in Genesis, um, and if you want, just crack, crack a Bible, um, Genesis 1 and 2, like <laughs> you'll hear these two different stories. And they have contradicting hows. Um, they also have different but complementary answers to the question, why? And I think that that's really what we're, what we're going for there, that evolution is our best science. That is how we think ha things happen from like the scientific method. The creation stories that scripture provides is not an answer to the question how, it's, it's answers to the question why. Next. Haha. <laughs> okay. Jonah, why are Christians hypocrites? Why are Christians hypocrites? <coughs> um, because Christians are people and people are hypocrites. And I think that that's actually okay. Now, it can be really painful, and I think that we... We need to name that pain. We need to name the fact that, that Christian individuals, Christian institutions in particular, um, hold a set of values, fail to live up to those values and cause harm, that, that that's something that we need to name. And also, I think that when we have some grace for one another, we understand that we're sort of all in process and that that's normal and it's, it's, it's okay as long as we are doing our best to mitigate harm and heal from any harm we cause. Um, and there's this idea, um, especially on, on the left that I've encountered, of, of mixed consciousness. And consciousness, it comes from like the idea of class consciousness and, and being like aware of class solidarity and those kinds of things. Mis mixed consciousness is when we talk about how someone may have very progressive ideas on one thing and very regressive ideas on another thing. And we just sort of hold those tensions. The goal is for us to move all the way into the, the fully realized um, uh, awareness that God has for us, that we are in relationship to each other. But even our scriptures, you know, Romans 7, Paul goes on this whole, like, very complicated rambling rant of, like, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, and I want to do good, but I do bad, <laughs> and I do the bad. Yeah. Anyway, we're human. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get to use it, so <laughs> here we go. Next oh, question. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What is theology? Aha. Okay, so theology, um, it is, that word itself is from the Latin roots, um, theo and ology. Ology you might recognize from words like biology or zoology, um, and it just means like the field of study um, or, or ideas about. Um, and theo is, uh, it means God. So theology, sort of technically means the study of God or the field of study of God. But when we talk about theology, we're really talking about any ideas we have about God or conversations we're having about God. A lot of the theologians um, that I really like will uh, sometimes be a little less pretentious about it and just call it God talk. So theology is God talk. When you are having ideas about God, you are engaging in theology. Next. Jonah, what is the deal with the Trinity? <laughs> right. Okay. So the Trinity is a doctrine, uh, a, a God talk idea, that God is three persons and that each of those three persons is fully God and that there is one God. And in case you couldn't make sense of that, um, I will give you some metaphors. God is like an egg 
with a yolk and an egg white and an eggshell. And actually, no, that's a terrible metaphor for this that people use all the time um, because they're trying to explain three things in one thing that are all the same thing, but an egg is not like that. An egg has these distinct parts. God is not as, as separate as an eggshell from an egg yolk, um, and God is more whole than one egg. Right, so what about if God is like H2O, and so like sometimes God is water, and sometimes steam, and sometimes ice? But no, because that's modalism, which is a particular kind of heresy that says like, oh, God's just like in a different mode, or like a different haircut as the Holy Spirit. Not true. Distinct. We're trying to get back to those three persons. So all of our analogies fall short is my summary here. And the idea that God is three persons and each of those persons is fully God and there is only one God flatly on its face makes no sense. And so all of the, theo- the analogies that we try and bring are really insufficient. I think that this is where we actually just say that God is a mystery It's just sometimes weird, but mostly God is relational and communal. Okay, I'm fine. I'm done. All right. Jonah, next question is, why does God allow bad things to happen? (sighs) Um, No, thank you. This is a hard one. (laughs) One we get a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's arguably the oldest and most complex question relating to faith in uh, in a God um, who is good and... (coughs) And so I just want to say, like, it's a valid question. Um, it's an important question. And there are answers. Most of the kind of Christian answers are built around the premise that human beings are created to have free will and autonomy and that God lets us make choices, even catastrophic choices. Um, because if God didn't and intervened and made, made sure that we only made the best choices, then we wouldn't actually have choice at all. And that we wouldn't really be human. That part of our relationship to humans, or to a relationship as humans to God, which is foundational to who God is, because in that trinity, really the only takeaway is that God is in relationship even with God's self. So relationship, super important to God. God's not going to violate that relationship by controlling us like robots, which means that we're going to screw up and that that's going to cause suffering. Um, But sometimes that just feels insufficient. Because it's like, well, God, figure out a better system then. You're God, and we're down here suffering. And yes, theoretically, it's our fault. And also, like, do something about it, please. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that that's a really legitimate answer. And it's in Scripture. So if you want to learn more about that process of railing at God and that being holy, check out Job. Job, that guy, he knew how to suffer. (laughs) Yeah, he did. All right, next question. Does God test us in hard (coughs) ways to teach us lessons? No. I believe from reading the whole of Scripture and from being in relationship with God and, you know, from all of my senses and all of my um, time spent with God in Scriptures and elsewhere and in history, I believe that God's character does not allow for God to cause us intentional pain or suffering, or, or even temptation, which is uh, something really closely linked to the idea of testing in the scriptures. Um, God doesn't do that as a teaching mechanism. And one of the reasons is that there is plenty of that in real life, right? There's plenty of hardship. Like if God wants us to learn from hardship, from temptation, 
from testing. God doesn't need to like intervene on our lives to make that happen. Life is hard. And God is actually really good, we know from the scriptures and I know from personal experience, at teaching us all the time from bad things, that God can take something bad that happened to us that wasn't God's will and still help us to learn from it, but that God also teaches us from good things, um, that, that feeling loved, for instance, can be transformational, that God can teach us through all kinds of ways, and God doesn't actually manipulate us um, by causing us harm so that we like learn a lesson. Now, you can make a scriptural case to, to the opposite, um, there are lots of different people who contributed to scripture and some people really wanted to emphasize God's sovereignty or in chargeness and I think they just kind of got it wrong okay good job you got that one really quickly here we go next question if Jesus needed to die then is it even Judas's fault that he portrayed Jesus so this gets back to that same um, question of like God's in chargeness. How much of what's happening in any given moment is because God said, this is exactly the way that it should happen and I have put all of these things into order. And that really questions that free will thing. So when we're thinking about God, when we're engaging in God talk, there are some things that different people prioritize differently. Some people are like, God's sovereignty, God's in chargeness is the most important. Calvin was really big into that. Um, and then there are other people who are like, no, God's character, God's goodness are pretty important, and we need to like balance these things. And there's the idea of free will and humanity's um, ability to, to kind of contribute to how things play out. I think here we have another instance of people saying, God had a plan, it went exactly as planned. And then other people who are saying, well, what about humanity's role or like, that does not seem like a very good God thing to do, are like, well, what about Judas? And I would say really quickly in my last, what, 20 seconds, um, I'm not sure that I agree with the premise that Jesus needed to die, um, but I think that it's probable that Jesus coming out of love for us to be with us was going to clash with empire. And so it's more like an inevitability or just a very strong likelihood. And that Judas made choices, and they were really bad, but Judas also had mixed consciousness because he was with Jesus for years and did some good stuff too. And we're all, the good and the bad all gets included in that journey. Next. Next question. Where was Jesus for the three days between death and resurrection? Okay, so according to tradition, Jesus was storming the gates of hell and orchestrating a jailbreak. And uh, you can conceive of this in different ways, and it's a lot of it is related to theology of the cross and like why Jesus did die or what happened when Jesus died. And the one that we're all uh, probably most familiar with is the one where God is like this bloodthirsty, terrible uh, person who just like needed someone to die and was like, I want all of humanity or one Jesus Christ. Um, but there's a lot of other ways that we think about it, and one of them is really elevates uh, the devil as an important character. That God is fully good and the devil is fully bad and the devil um, is capturing people up and, and gobbling us up with our desires and our sin and keeping us captive um, in many different ways in life and in death. And the cross is Jesus saying, oh, the devil, take me. Like, 
well, just take me too. And, and Jesus like then gets into captivity but can't be held captive. And so once he's on the inside, there's like a huge prison break. Um, and I like that one. That one appeals to me a whole lot. I think it's very cool. Um, there are flaws in it as well. But, uh, but yeah, according to that idea of God and of Jesus, that's what Jesus is up to. Um, in between, you know, death on the cross and resurrection a few days later, breaking everybody out of hell. <coughs> well, speaking of hell, Jonah, is there a hell? No, I don't know. Maybe, probably not. Now, I know this flies in the face of my whole jailbreak idea <coughs> for me to say that there is no hell. I think that hell is either a place that is empty, like a real place that is fully empty because God has conquered it, um, or like, you know, maybe conquer is not the word we want to use, right? God has destroyed the mechanisms that bind. Um, or it's a metaphor for the things that separate us from God in life and in death and in every part of our being. Either way, our Easter theology of the resurrection should give us freedom to not fear it. Um, Jesus stormed the gates, made that prison break happen, and, and so the point of that story, whether it is a literal, like Jesus went to the place of the dead and like broke literal chains, or if it's, we're saying like Jesus confronted death on, death on the cross and during that time, all the things that bind us and Jesus rose, either way, what we have is a, a story that promises that hell is nothing for us to fear, that Jesus has already broken those systems that could bind and hurt us, um, and that hell should never be used as, as a thing to terrorize us anymore. Next. All right. Well, the next question is, can <coughs> I forget about hell but just believe in heaven then? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you want, um, and especially if you are somebody who has been at any point in your life, terrorized by the idea of hell and by this thing that could be um, looming over you as a threat, maybe it is the most healthy um, to think about, you know, I'm just doing away with that idea of hell and I'm going to trust in heaven, whatever that means to you. Um, I would encourage you, though, to over time ask, like, what are you really looking for in your theology of heaven? Are you comforting your fear of mortality and your fear of death? Are you looking for a reward for good behavior? Um, are you hoping to connect with loved ones who have, have died? Um, or are you trying to escape any pain that you're feeling in this life? Um, and if you are finding that, that your idea about heaven is connected to one of those things, know that Jesus' teachings actually offer additional support for that um, that don't really hinge on heaven. And you know, so don't make, the heavy, don't make the pearly gates do your heavy lifting here. Um, there's a reason that Jesus didn't really talk about it. Jesus was super concerned with the way we live now, and, that, and the way we live now creating the opportunity for life to be eternal. Um, and I think we don't really know what that means, and I think that's fine. Um, but there's so much more to it than saying, I, I get a cloud when I die. Next. Perfect timing. Well. Right. <laughs> uh, if there is a heaven, what does it take to get in? I want to say, I'm tempted to say that the only thing that it takes to get in is Jesus' resurrection from the cross. 
that like we already have the ticket in, which is what we're all concerned about. Um, I think that God does have a plan for all of us to be healed into wholeness. But I also, in my own exploration of this, have really come to value the conversation around consent. That I do think that God is never going to force any of us to um, to be in heaven or to be in in God's plan of reconciliation. Um, and so I think that consent is really all that's needed, that we are invited. Um, and it's not like you have to choose, you have to let Jesus into your heart in this way that's like, oh, you have to like ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. But I feel like we do, that God is looking for our participation and consent, that God's not going to force us into anything um, in that eternal life kind of sense. But personally, honestly, my beliefs about heaven can be summed up in the idea that like, I don't know, you know, I don't know. It seems beyond our comprehension. Jesus didn't explain a lot of it, and that's probably for good reason. But God is good, and therefore I trust that whatever comes next is good, even if I don't totally understand it yet. Next. All right, moving on from the heaven and hell discussion, uh, the next question is, why is baptism important? Uh, Baptism is important. I could, I could use a little baptism right now. It is toasty in here today. Springtime plus we haven't turned off the boiler yet makes for a very, um, very sweaty Jonah. Um, baptism is important. <laughs> now that I've, I've wasted like a third of my time. Um, so this is one of those things that people actually think that, you know, like a lot of people will be like, oh, you need a baptism to get your ticket into the heaven. Um, but no, like that's not, that's not how heaven works. That's not how God works. It's not that transactional. Um, baptism is important as a ritual, uh, but it's something that God gave us for our sake. It's not, it's a gift. It's not something we're doing to, to like check a box for God's benefit. Um, it's something that God gave us as a way to participate in the work that God is doing in our lives and to connect meaningfully with God and community. Um, 10 out of 10 would recommend baptism. Like, I think it's really rad. And if it's something that you haven't experienced in your life, um, you know, hit me up uh, and, like, send, send me a DM because I would love to talk to you about it. Um, next. All right. Something that is debated heavily within <laughs> our home <laughs> is what's the difference between baptism as a baby and baptism as an adult? So uh, Cameron is is uh, telling the truth. This is a debate in our home. And I've given it a lot of thought. Um, to me, honestly, they seem like two different rituals. That baptism really evolved from, um, from a, a ritual of bathing for, for the cleansing of one's sins in the Jewish tradition. Like in Jesus' day, Jesus, Jesus would probably baptize like a bunch of times. Um, that like you would, you would go, you would fully immerse yourself in this water to cleanse yourself from sin, um, and then you would emerge on the other side. But then you would sin again, so you'd do it again and again and again. So our modern conception of baptism kind of comes from that. But Jesus said you only need to be baptized once. And then we ended up with all these different ideas about like, well, what's the point of that one baptism? And as an infant, 
our modern understanding of baptism as an infant is basically like entry into God's family. It's throwing this big party that's really more about the community and the community's commitment to raising you into the family, the freedom and unearned nature of adoption into God's family to say like, yeah, little baby, you haven't done squat. Welcome. Like you're in, you're loved. Yahtzee. Whereas the, the metaphor for adults is often more about marriage. It's about making a public commitment, expressing one's love. Um, it's a lot more driven by the person being baptized than by anything else. All right. <coughs> uh, with that comes, if I got baptized as a baby, do I need to get baptized then again? So the answer is no. Um, as I mentioned before, Jesus said that you really only need to get baptized once. Um, and there are, you know, some of you may have heard, like, if you were baptized as a baby, you may have heard in other communities that you still need to get baptized again, that it wasn't legitimate the first time you did it. And uh, cards on the table, I was baptized twice. I was baptized as an infant. I chose to be baptized again when I was, like, 19. Uh, because I believed the people who told me at that time that my real, my first baptism wasn't a real baptism. But really, I think that they are different rituals. Um, and I, I don't think that you need to do it twice. Um, if you've never been baptized before, you can do it at any time. If you were baptized as an infant, then really what you may be looking for is a way to connect to your baptism. It's something that I do really regularly. You may see me, um, when I'm done praying, I will make the sign of the cross on my forehead. I'm doing that in exactly the same way that um, the cross was signed on my forehead in oil when I was baptized as a baby. It's a reminder of my place in God's family. And whether that was as an infant with this whole community collaboration that I did nothing to earn, um, or as a 19-year-old a saying, oh, I really do want this. I want to be in this family, and I'm committed to it. Either way, um, there are ways for us to connect to our baptism that are meaningful, whether you, were, you did it as a baby or <laughs> Did it. All right. All right, moving on to a different subject. Um, how can I reconstruct my faith and relationship to the Bible after spiritual trauma? So healing from spiritual trauma is uh, not entirely unlike healing from many other kinds of trauma. And I would say that the way to reconstruct your faith, to build your relationship with scripture in particular, is slowly, deliberately, with lots of support, and some persistence. Um, you know, I think having an attitude of experimentation um, is is really helpful. Not trying to set things in stone, not trying to say, well, this thing was harmful to me, so, but it's part of Christianity, so I have to go back into it. Um, that's not going to be helpful. Or similarly, saying, well, this thing harmed me, and uh, so, like, I'm never touching it again. That thing is dead to me. Also, maybe not as helpful as you would think. Um, but but sort of going at your own pace and saying, like, here's what I need right now. Here's how I connect to God or to Scripture now. And letting that be open. Letting um, your spirit and the spirit of God lead together um, in, in just sort of finding a new rhythm that will change over time always as you heal and grow. Um, I, for instance, needed to ditch Jesus for a while. I, I was like, God the Father, I, I don't really know. And like, 
Jesus, like God the Father felt like too authoritarian. Jesus felt weird. I just didn't have <laughs> I hung out with the Spirit for a while. It worked for me, but you got to find your own rhythm, but don't give up on it because it's worth it. All right. Next question is, the Bible seems kind of outdated <laughs> on certain things like relationships, sex, and marriage. Should we just ignore those parts? No, those are like the most interesting parts. <laughs> um, no, the Bible sorts of is the Bible is full of all sorts of weird stuff, um, from monogamy to polyamory to concubines to um, marriage of like not that distant relatives. I mean, like wh- I don't think anyone <laughs> should go into the Bible being like, I'm gonna flip to the first relationship I see in there and try and model my healthy. You know, romantic, sexual, or or familial relationships on this. Like that's not what the Bible is for. Um, But I think it's really interesting, and that if we come with curiosity, uh, if we experience it a little bit more in a descriptive way than a prescriptive way, that God is allowing us to tell our own stories from our own experiences, not so that everyone has to emulate it exactly, but so that we can learn from one another. It's really interesting. So we say, well, why is that in here? What, what can it teach us for today? It's not going to map on one-to-one directly, and that's where we really get off base when we try and talk about, like, biblical marriage, for instance. Biblical marriage is a whole hodgepodge, y'all. There is no such thing as biblical marriage. Next. All right. Next question is, what is the point of prayer? What is the point of prayer? I love prayer. Prayer is about building a relationship with God. It's about spending time with God. We, we think about prayer a lot of times just as asking for stuff. And like that can be a really important component. But when we think about other relationships we have that are more complex, for instance, if, if you had a really important friend and all you ever did when you talked to them was ask them for favors, you know, maybe they'd be like a (laughs) a really supportive friend and just like always be there for that. But you couldn't really go deep with them. And I think that's what we see a lot in in relationships of like parents and young kids. It's really important for young kids to ask their parents for what they need. That's what petitionary prayer is when we ask God for what we need. And that's great. But it's really only one piece of it. God wants to hear about your day. God wants to spend time with you. Um, if, if we want to know God and to be with God and to have a deep connection to God, we should be seeking after those things too. So prayer is really any way that you deepen your connection to God by intentionally being present in that relationship. You like to, you know, go on nature walks, do that in a way that's intentional with God, that's prayer. And that can deepen your sense of self and God and spirituality. Um, it's, it's, so valuable in creating a more expansive spiritual life. All right. Well, continuing on that topic, why should I pray if God already knows everything? I think this is a really legit question. (laughs) Because, like, you know, there are some people who talk about how, like, within COVID, partners are starting to have less and less to talk about because they were there for the whole thing. And you could argue that you have the same problem with God, that God has been, like, observing what's been going on with you, you're not going to tell God anything that they don't already know at some level. But I think 
that our idea that God is omniscient or all-knowing kind of gets thrown into this weird space when we start thinking about, like, we have this assumption of, a j- of, of objective reality. And so it's sort of like there is an absolute true narrative of what has happened here. But everything we know about God, everything that we're starting to talk about, about the way we relate to each other, really values subjectivity, which is to say, like, perspective matters. I like to talk about this a lot when we talk about the scriptures because I think there's a reason we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those books are theoretically telling the same story, but they're doing so from different vantage points, and they come across really differently. So, yeah, God might, like, know that you're stressed out at work, for instance, but it means something else to have you express it and to spend time with God in that, that God wants to hear from you from your own perspective. God wants to talk to you. And apart from words, you know, time spent together is a way to be in communication and bring your subjective experience into God's to be shared. Man, Uh, are we close? All right. This is the final question of this rendition of No Stupid Question. Just kidding. All right. Last Loving question. the announcer energy here. <laughs> Last question. Do I need to go to church, or is it okay to just believe on my own? Okay. I think this is something that I hear from a lot of people who have been really disappointed by the church, who have been really harmed by the church, and have had to do some exploring on their own. Um, I think it's probably going to be another important question as we come out of quarantine eventually. Um, you know, do I have to go to church? How important is it to, like, go to church? And uh, I, I would have a counter question, which is, like, are you the type of person who does best in society? Like, there are some people who really thrive as hermits, some people who, like, definitely want to go, like, build their cabin in the woods. Um, and I don't, I'm not here to knock that. Most of us, though, are really built... Um, for human contact, that we are the happiest, we are the healthiest, we are the most connected to God and to one another when we are in community. And that goes for spiritual community too. So I would say that like, it's not that you like need to go to church to again, check off a box. It's that spiritual community is another gift from God given to us because we need it, most of us, that we long for it at some level. And if you're somebody who really has been missing people through quarantine, Um, Take note of that for your spiritual life, too, that it's probably evidence that your spiritual life would thrive best if you had more people to talk to about it, if you gathered with people in worship and experienced God collectively in that way, because you should... (laughs) All right, the end end. Okay, well, I think that covers our 20 questions with that air horn. Is the beat going to drop soon? or No, yeah. just some. Oh, all right. Thank you very much. Great job, Jonah. You did almost every question in under 90 seconds. Yes. All right. Well, um, thanks for bearing with me. Please do drop any additional questions that you think should show up in part three in the chat or, again, DM me. And, um, yeah, we will continue learning and exploring these things together. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, we delight in knowing more about you, in hearing from one another, 
hearing from your scriptures, and in just finding different ways to know you. God, please be with us in our exploration. Give us curious and open hearts. Give us knowledge that we can share with one another, and give us eager spirits to seek you in your fullness. God, you are good, and may we encounter that goodness everywhere we go. Amen.